Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today, we'll take a bird's eye view of the global markets and talk about what's driving the red hot rally in China, broader Asian markets, and other emerging markets so far in 2021. Here's my conversation with Jeremy Schwartz, the global head of research at Wisdom Tree Investments, Brian Lake, head of America's client ETF at JP Morgan Asset Management, and Tom Lydon, CEO of ETF Trends. Tom, let me start with you. Generally, we've got a, th this is a broad question, but we've got a new administration uh, in Washington. I'm wondering what your thoughts uh, about what, if any effect, the Biden administration might have on the ETF uh, business. Anything that's on their plate that's going to affect this business. Yeah, initial indication, Bob, is uh, the new administration, the SEC, will continue to uh, support ETF uh, issuers after a record year of flows last year. You know, all the, the right things, transparency, diversification, low cost, tax efficiency, and, and this big wave we're seeing of transitioning mutual funds into ETF wrappers. Um, I think some of the key things will be, most recently, there's been an interest in the standardization and ESG research. As most issuers and index providers um, that they partner with have their own proprietary definition and offering of ESG, I think it, it will be one of the mandates for the SEC to standardize that a bit. And even though Janet Yellen is somewhat concerned about crypto, it's really not her job. Uh, Biden's dominating Gary Gessler, uh, former head of the CFTC. So that actually may help for the mandate to get cryptocurrencies in ETF form. And then finally, we saw a huge interest in IPOs last year. As you know, the IPO renaissance ETF was up over 100%. So there's a big hunger among ETF investors uh, for IPOs and pre-IPOs in the form of SPACs. Today, as you probably saw, there was the third SPAC ETF that was launched by Morgan Creek Capital and Mark Yusko. So I think that's an area that Gessler's going to look at. He's expressed some concern over transparency and the internal interest of those behind the SPACs as far as ownership and incentives. Yeah, that's a, a by the way, we're going to have Mark Yusko on Monday on ETF Edge. Those of you who want to know more about that SPAC ETF that Tom's referencing. Um, uh, Brian and Jeremy, if you want to weigh in on uh, the Biden administration and thoughts, feel free. But uh, other than that, Brian, I just want to move on to the international markets because that's our main topic today. We've seen these Asian markets outperforming in the U.S., outperforming the U.S. China is up 10 percent uh, this year. It's the hottest market in the world uh, right now. What do you believe or, or why? I know you said you do. Why do you believe international stocks might have a shot at outperforming the U.S. this year and any specific areas that you think might outperform? Yeah, that's right, Bob. And, and kind of picking up where you started, one of the major reasons we think is because uh, with the new Biden administration, there should be less trade uncertainty. And so I do think that will have uh, a stabilizing effect. Uh, in addition to that, you know, the valuations are extremely attractive. Uh, on the international side, we saw some of the biggest drawdowns last year. And so we are expecting uh, that snapback. And then, yes, to your point, uh, China, China is contributing heavily. Uh, they've obviously been one of the first to hit that reopen trade, uh, which is driving it. Uh, from our perspective, we do like um, active. Um, one of our concerns is that the major benchmarks on the international side are heavy banks um, and heavy energy. Uh, whereas we're, uh, we're, we're more positive on areas like clean energy, 
uh, semiconductors and luxury goods. Uh, so we do think there will be some differentiation with that. Uh, one of the best ways we think you can play that is with uh, our international growth ETF, uh, ticker JIG. Uh, this has 50 to 70 names. It's an actively managed portfolio. Uh, portfolio managers been in the years and the industry for uh, decades. Does have 14 percent uh, weight to China, and so we think that's a great way to uh, participate in, in what we think could be uh, leadership on the international side. Yeah, and that jig, there it is, has been straight up uh, for about a year. Um, I wonder if we could put up uh, some of the main components in that. And I see it's Taiwan Semiconductor, Tencent, Alibaba, all names we know. Nestle is one of the few European stocks that are in there. ASML uh, also in that uh, as well. How, are you, how do you weight this particular international growth ETF? Is, is it just what's, what goes, how do you decide what the weightings are? Well, it's an actively managed portfolio. And so... Uh, we're going to take the names where we have uh, the conviction that we think can participate uh, in, in, the, in the, the particular sectors that we think uh, are, are positioned to benefit from potentially this reopened trade, uh, which is why we like that. So, you know, this is, this is a bottoms-up, fundamentally selected uh, portfolio of names where we're doing the research, leveraging our global footprint of analysts uh, and, and identifying the names that we think. Uh, need that weighting. And then and then we have conviction. Like I said, it's going to be a relatively concentrated portfolio with 50 to 70 names. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, same question uh, for you. I put up uh, a few moments ago, we put up uh, some of the global markets and the U.S., uh, as well as it's been doing, is, is the laggard so far uh, this year. Uh, China, South Korea, Japan, even Europe are outperforming the S&P. Uh, right now. I, I know you're fairly bullish on international. You've got a suite of international ETFs as well. W why do you think this is a year for international? It's, it's got to be more than just a weak dollar, obviously. What's, what's, what, what's behind the, 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 the good feelings on international this year? Yeah, I think some of the case for international is you have this reversion and, and trade rotation where you had large cap growth, U.S. tech dominating, you're, you're starting to see that leadership change. And so you're, you're seeing a little bit more cyclicals, uh, growth globally increasing is good for international. Uh, and, you know, when you think about the U.S., it's, it's really tech dominated and it's sort of that shutdown economy doing well for U.S. tech. And as you reopen, the international cyclicals, I think, can do well. Um, you know, emerging markets on that better trade tension um, is, is a long-term view. We think that's some of the growth dynamics echoing what Brian just talked about. You know, we think those EM tech giants can be, you know, the rivals to U.S. tech giants over the long run. So that's sort of a more of a strategic long-run type allocation. Whereas when you think about Europe, you think about Japan, they, they can be more of the global growth reacceleration. And I think that's where you might see some, some interest there. Yeah, uh, you have – one of the interesting things about uh, Wisdom Tree is you very much emphasize the importance of removing uh, currency as an effect uh, on it to get to a sort of pure play on the – on the stock prices. You have several uh, hedged ETFs that have done very well. Your Europe hedged ETF, and I wonder if you can explain how this works, how you hedge out the currency, but Unilever, Lind, which is a, a material stock, ASML, BASF, famous uh, company, of course, uh, another material company, L'Oreal, uh, all major components in that. Um, how, how do you pull out the currency here? Explain how you're, how you're doing that, the, the currency hedge part of this. Sure. No, I think that's one of the key questions. When you go overseas, you have to 
sell your dollars to buy, you know, euros to then go buy the underlying stocks. And, and the question is, are you bullish the euro or not? Um, you know, I, I, for emerging markets, there could be a high cost to hedge in the developed world because of the negative interest rates at the ECB, the negative interest rates at Swiss, negative interest rates in Japan. You're actually paid to hedge. Uh, and it's not just like a short term phenomenon. You've actually been paid to hedge on average last you know, three decades. Um, and so we kind of say. There's no expected return from currency. It's sort of expected risk. Now, if you think there's a big, weak dollar move, um, you know that's a, a reason not to have it, and that's sort of an active decision. But if you don't really know, and you're sort of more neutral, hedging lets you get to a baseline of neutral. Um, you know, I think you know for EM again, cost is higher, but for the developed world, Europe and Japan, it's sort of a, a better than free option that you're sort of paid the interest rate carry to not have to take it. And so I think for for Europe and Japan in particular, it, it's markets we'd say people should be more hedged than they they often are. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, let me, uh, Tom, why don't you weigh in here on your thoughts on on the international market? What's striking to me is. This is the first time we've actually had this conversation in years. The United States has outperformed emerging markets for I don't know how long, 10 years. Um, it's outperformed China, it outperformed Europe for 10 years. Um, I know it, the era of emerging markets, it seems to me, was the 2000s. That did really well up until the great financial crisis. And then it fell apart. It never really recovered. And only now we're talking about it. Or am I trying exaggerating a, a little bit? And uh, tell no. me if I am. But yeah, why? You're why? Not, you're not, why is everybody yeah. so bullish? Yeah, well, it, we we uh, survey thousands of advisors every week and they are very bullish on international markets, very bullish on emerging markets. And, and as these guys said, just to put in perspective, uh, S&P is trading at a forward PE of 25. The MSCI uh, ACWI is at 20, and emerging markets is at 15. So you can actually buy emerging market stocks for a 40% discount. And on top of that, as Jerry, Jeremy was touching on, there's a strong case for the U.S. dollar continuing to slide, and that can actually work in your favor as well. So there's a lot of reasons to, to consider that right now. These folks do a great job in global investing. And then one thing to, to put on top of that, we don't spend a lot of time talking about dividend opportunities overseas, too. And both J.P. Morgan uh, and Wisdom Tree, number one, have expressed concerns about fixed income investing in the U.S. and also have talked about the opportunities for dividend or getting that income in the form of dividends by buying international markets which uh, are very, very attractive today. So a lot for all the right reasons, it, it really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Brian, um, last word on the international part of this thing. Tell me, do you think there's, it, a lot of this really boils down to, about overseas, is it, the dominance of U.S. technology stocks in the 2010s. Do, when I look around the world, what is challenging them? I don't see much. I only see some China tech stocks. I see Alibaba. I see JD.com. I see Tencent. Is there any argument that could be made that China tech giants could challenge U.S. tech giants and be a major force in the in the 2020s? Or is the geo or the politics of it get too involved? Weigh in on that. Yeah. So so you raise a good point, right? And I and I think what we're going to continue to see is a, a difficulty for U.S. tech giants to penetrate China in a meaningful way, um, challenges from just a governmental um, standpoint, languages, how things transfer over. We know that that's been a story for a, a long time. 
Um, but we also know that the mainland China marketplace is enormous. The demographics are huge. Um, there was $1.7 trillion in e-commerce sales last year alone. Uh, 60% of that is happening on a mobile device. That makes up 29% of their retail sector. So some of these China names have an amazing growth story within mainland China uh, itself. And if those names can just own their own home market, I think you're going to see a huge appreciation from them. There's still a lot of untapped potential uh, in China alone. And then I think we will see them start to uh, come to, to other markets. But I think they're going to keep themselves really busy um, in mainland China. To your point, your U.S. tech companies have done a great job really in every other market except for China, um, where you're starting to see some, some leadership there. So I think yeah. this is going to be a story where you see um, both Chinese tech and U.S. tech powering forward um, in, their own, in their own specific lanes, if you will. But, Tom, where, where does the politics come in here? Where, where does the political difficulties China has relating to the rest of the world come in here? I'm wondering if that could prove some kind of break uh, on, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Alibaba is as important as Apple and, and Microsoft story, the, the, the penetration story in other, in other countries. Or am I trying to make too much out of the, the whole political situation? No, it's, it's going to be in the spotlight, Bob. And, you know... Um uh, it seemed that the Trump administration was pretty tough on China and that uh, the Biden administration probably is not going to be as tough. So that will, in fact, bode well for China. Uh, however, state-owned companies, uh, the influence on companies like we've seen uh, with Jack Ma somewhat being silenced recently is a concern, and I think a lot of people will be paying attention to that. However, we're yeah. still in the early stages of, of China, A shares especially, and there's some great opportunities there as well. So it's an area to really pay attention to. There's some great op upside opportunity. Yeah, I want to move on and uh, talk about something that I'm very interested in, and that is dividend products. Um, we get a lot of interest in this from uh, investors. And Jeremy, I know Wisdom Tree has got a, a very interesting suite of dividend products. Um, uh, including a, a dividend growth uh, ETF. You've got a mid-cap dividend ETF, a large-cap dividend, a small-cap dividend. You kind of cover the universe there. Tell us a little bit about how you weight these products and what future does dividend uh, producers have in 2021? We're putting up here uh, some of the specific names of Wisdom Tree products here in the dividend space. But uh, tell us how you weight these products. You know, the key, you know, on, the, on just the case, um, you know, Tom brought it up earlier on just the historically low yielding environment rates at zero short term rates at zero the tips yields the inflation adjusted yields at negative rates um, negative one percent plus you know the fed wants to target more than two percent inflation and you're just getting a little bit over one percent on your tenure i mean it's 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 a tough spot for investors who need income and so you know we we kind of think of dividends as things that can protect from inflation over time they rise if you go in the 70s and 80s dividends grew six percent dividend growth was more than inflation during the the high inflation decades and we expect a return to inflation so that's a sort of macro case in terms of how we weight these portfolios unlike the market cap weighted indexes these rebalance back to dividend streams so apple pay 10 billion plus in dividends you take all the total dividends in the u.s and, and divide it by that total dividend stream um you know last year was a tough year for let's say you showed some of the minute small cap dividends large cap dividends were only down two three percent uh in aggregate they weren't down by a lot um but when you go to that mid and small cap they're down 20 to 
25 percent, you know, in, in, at the bottoms, they're down even more. Uh, and so that was really the shutdown economy. The sort of mid small caps more sensitive to the U.S. to the to the shutdown, large yeah. caps, quality, more tech, more healthcare, not as impacted with the with the virus. But as you get to a reopening, I mean, we're starting to see like emerging markets leading this year. You're seeing small caps leading sort of the reopening benefiting, you know, it started with the, the election right, and the vaccine. It's It's been doing well. But but Jeremy, I wonder if we could put up what's in the U.S. dividend growth, the, the largest holdings here. So I see Apple, I see Microsoft, Johnson and Johnson, Verizon and Procter and Gamble. This is like you know mega cap uh, land here. Yeah. Um, it, is Apple in there because why? It's growing its dividend. I mean, I, 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 Apple does not strike me as a big dividend provider or even growing it. But what, what's the criteria here for including? It is the biggest. It's basically one of the biggest dividend payers in the world. Um, So when you take the total dividend stream, it's paying essentially the dividends per share times shares outstanding, which is sort of a modified market cap, you know, giving more weight to the the more dividends they pay. It screens for quality. The the, the specific screens are growth and quality. I, I call the quality screen your Warren Buffett factor. He always says I buy like high return equity and no debt. As his, as what he, when he says like what types of companies buy, that's half of the screen is those quality factors. The other half is earnings growth, traditional Russell growth type screens. You package that together, uh, and then you wait back to the dividend stream once a year. It just did that right. in December, and so that higher quality nature we think leads to companies that can sustainably grow their earnings and dividends over time. Tom, can I be a curmudgeon on dividends? Uh, here's a problem I've had for years. The viewer. The viewers get me a curmudgeon. No, you know me, Tom. The no, the no. the viewers think dividends are free. That's the problem I've got with this whole thing. They think that oh, if a stock is a hundred dollars and it pays out a two dollar dividend, that's like two dollars that's free. But it's not free. You and I know that if it pays a hundred dollars and it pays out a two dollar dividend, the stock is down ninety eight dollars. Uh, that there is no free lunch. Uh, out there. And I, every year I get, we just get so many, you know, how do I get more, you know, dividends out of the thing as if the dividend that you're going to get is suddenly going to cause your total amount of money that you're going to have to outperform everything else. And I don't know if that's the case or not, or am I just being a curmudgeon among this? You're, you're not, Bob. I mean, um, everybody has to rethink uh, income today. You know, you think about a classic 60-40 portfolio, People are living longer. That 40% allocation, many advisors are thinking in the next five years might be dead money, might be not only that you're not going to make much, but you might lose money if we start to see a little bit of a creep up in rates. As you're looking at this ETF, uh, DGRW, and you look at the holdings, these are some of the best performers in the S&P 500 in the last 10 years, but they're fairly priced and they're kicking off decent dividends. If you're retiring at 65 today, would you rather have these types of companies in your portfolio in the next 25 years or be exposed to the bond market where you're not making much of a yield? And in fact, that that uh, that money is at risk if we do see higher rates. So yeah. we're seeing more and more of a shift yeah. to the more of an allocation towards dividends. Yeah. Yeah. But that's an argument for the predominance of the quality screen. I think, rather than uh, on the dividends. Brian, I've sort of left you out of this. I don't know if you have any thoughts uh, on the whole uh, uh, dividend question, but it's a it's a big issue. 
Um, my, my point is that dividends are not free, and investors somehow think that they, I don't know why, they think that they are, but, but they're not. So uh, the question is, how do you pull out money in a situation, uh, people who want to pull out money in a situation where there's not a lot of money to pull out? It makes some sense to go into high dividend payers, but there are risks with doing that. Look at ExxonMobil. We don't know if ExxonMobil's dividend is safe uh, at all, for example. Yeah, Bob, you're right. And, and, and I agree with what, what Tom was saying. What I think we're really hearing from investors is less specific on dividend and more specific around I need income. Um, and I, I do think that investors are continuing to look for income in the markets, particularly because they're not so sure that the bond markets are going to be able to provide that for them. Um, one way, obviously, you can do that is by getting option premiums, right? And so we, we've actually launched an actively managed ETF, JEPI, J-E-P-I, which is essentially a covered call overlay strategy. It's got active equity underlying, but then using the option markets, we can we can overlay on that. And the way we think about that one is, you know, it protects to the downside, so you're only going to get 60 to 80% of the down, downside. But on the upside, you can get a 6 to 8% yield off of this. Um, and so that can really start to drive uh, a, a nice income story for you. It's not a dividend per se, but that is that income uh, that we think investors are, are looking for. Um, on the other side of the, uh, of the table, and, and tying it back to the, the Biden administration, investors are also starting to think about, are my taxes going to creep up? Um, and they're also seeing that there, there's going to be an aggressive infrastructure program. Um, and so could munis, municipal, municipalities benefit from this? Muni. Um, we've got an ultra-short Muni ETF, which can get you 85% of the yield, the tax equivalent yield of a 10-year treasury with only 8.5% of the duration. Um, so I do think investors are continuing to look for income. They might not be looking in the traditional dividend bucket. They might need to look in some other areas uh, for their portfolio. And the symbol for, for, for that is, is JMST, am I right? I'm, I'm just looking off camera here. Is that right? You're, you're exactly right, Bob. JMST. Okay. So, uh, investors, you might want to take a look at that. That's a very good point. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is our Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be talking about key concepts to keep in mind when investing globally and how a weaker dollar might impact global ETF flows. Here's my producer, Kirsten Chang. Bob, looking at the framework of global ETFs out there, there are obviously geographically focused global ETFs, but they're also thematically focused global ETFs as well. Take, for instance, large cap China tech ETFs like the KWEB, global tech ETFs, emerging markets, consumer funds, the list goes on. What areas are we starting to see gain traction globally this year? You know, Kirsten, this whole issue of uh, investing overseas is very complicated. Simplistically, the strength of the dollar is a very important factor in investing overseas, particularly emerging markets. Uh, it's true the dollar has been weaker recently, and there is a case a lot of people are making for the dollar to continue to stay weak. Uh, a weak dollar makes it easier for overseas corporations to purchase goods, um, but it's a little more complicated than that. But it, this whole issue about buying stocks overseas is a lot more complicated uh, than just owning uh, uh, or considering what the dollar issues are. Uh, first, there's just the general performance, even X currency. Um, there's an argument that could be made for mean reversion. Mean reversion is the tendency for markets to sort of go back to where they used to be after periods of either outperformance or underperformance. 
the U.S. has outperformed all emerging market indices for more than a decade. And generally, it's outperformed Europe as well. The emerging markets really had their great period of growth uh, in the 2000s. After the big disaster, what we call the Thai bot crisis in 1997-98, when all the currencies kind of fell apart, um, the uh, emerging market economies, particularly the Asian emerging market economies, regrouped and had an enormous growth spurt in the mid-2000s. The, the markets went up tremendously at this time. Europe also went up and outperformed the United States during this period. But after the financial crisis hit in, in, in 2008 and 2009, these markets fell apart, and they, they never really recovered. I mean, they recovered, but not like the U.S. did. They have underperformed the United States, both Europe and emerging markets, for a decade. Essentially, emerging markets have been sideways for a long, long time. And just recently, just now, last few months, we're talking about outperformance by this group. Uh, why did this happen? Well, the most obvious explanation is... First off, the U.S. pumped huge amount of money into the U.S. economy after the financial crisis. Other countries did as well, but the U.S. really went all out. And the reason is because they had a leadership in the Federal Reserve that was very experienced with the Great Depression in the 30s. And the one thing they figured out was the reason the Depression was so bad in the 30s was not because the stock market crashed. It was because the government did nothing to assist or did very little to assist banks and other people. They didn't pump enough money into the economy. In 2008, 2009, Bernanke, the head of the Federal Reserve, decided, I'm not going to make that mistake, and they were aggressive. The one thing I think the Federal Reserve feels now is studying the 2008-2009 crisis, they should have done even more. That's why you hear Janet Yellen say, go big, because that works. They know that works. So U.S. pumping money into the economy helped the U.S. stock market in the 2010s, for sure, over other countries. Second point is U.S. technology owns the world. It did own the world. It emerged in the 2000s and the 2010s, dominating. Technology, the primary growth factor in the world economy, dominated the world. And it was U.S. technology stocks that dominated the world. Now, here's a very interesting question. It'll color how you feel about emerging markets. China is considered an emerging market. For how long, I don't know. But China's tech companies are starting to compete with U.S. tech companies. So we know all about Alibaba. We know all about JD.com. We know all about Tencent. U.S. tech companies have changed the world. Here's a good question. Could Chinese tech companies change the world? I don't know the answer to this, but I can tell you that's the question to answer. Uh, there is a problem here. There is not just execution questions. That execution question is how well can the companies perform with their management and grow with the ideas they have. There is a political question here, which is how is China interacting with the rest of the world? And does the rest of the world want to interact with Chinese companies? Do they want to interact given um, the influence of the Chinese government on, on some of these companies? Uh, and that is a very difficult question to answer. But if you can answer it correctly, I think you'll figure out about whether Chinese companies can equally uh, compete with U.S. tech companies uh, in the 2020s. And what's driving the rebound we've seen so far in emerging markets uh, ETFs? Is it partly commodity-driven, commodity inflation helping that along, a weaker dollar, some of this tied to U.S. market valuations looking frothy right now and people needing alternatives? You know, Kirsten, the thing about commodities is it's generally an effect of a global rally. It, it's not a cause of it. So we use this, uh, this phrase, the global reflation trade, 
And it's a term we use to imply, simply put, higher levels of inflation. But why? Well, it's due to the massive stimulus that's going on around the world, but particularly in the United States, stimulus to get through the COVID winter, essentially. Um, we're anticipating a smooth vaccine rollout and for a significant second half reopening uh, of the U.S. and the global economy because all of this stimulus. Um, and one of the effects of this stimulus is increased economic activity, obviously. And one of the leading indicators of this is commodity inflation. So that's exactly what we've been seeing. Uh, prices for copper, uh, prices for aluminum, what we call base metals have all been going up because of anticipation that the global economy is again going to be expanding. China is the biggest consumer of global, uh, global commodities in the world. So when China starts recovering, as it has been coming out of the COVID winter earlier than the U.S., commodity prices tend to rise. And that's exactly what happened. You can track this if you want. There are a number of commodity indexes, but uh, the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, if you just Google that, you can see that that's a basket uh, of different uh, commodities, in including uh, the base metals, and you can follow that um, fairly easily. So just remember, generally, commodity inflation, which we are seeing, is an e effect of some kind of uh, event, either a global expansion, uh, a global expansion of, of money, a global expansion uh, of jobs or something like that. It's generally not a cause of anything. That's it for today. I'm Bob Bazzani. Thank you for listening. And make sure you tune in next week. And in the meantime, you can tweet us your questions or topic ideas at ETF Edge CNBC.